Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We're in a series entitled Marriage and Sexuality, and uh, today we're in part 10, and I've promised for weeks already uh, that I'd talk about singleness, though I know absolutely nothing about it or virtually nothing about it, because I pretty much was married right out of the cradle. (laughs) And so anything that I derive about singleness is by listening to singles or observing singles, and particularly seeing what the scripture has to say about it. And that's what we're going to uh, do this morning. We're going to look at what scripture has to say about it. But before we do, let's bow for a word of prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in this uh, very, very important matter. Father, we uh, just praise and thank you for these kids that were just dedicated. We thank you for the family of God uh, that, the, that the nuclear family mirrors. And uh, we just uh, worship you. We, we just can't believe these, all these kids uh, that you've entrusted to us. Boy, do we need a lot of help and wisdom. And now, Father, as we look at this, uh, as, as you've been leading us through this series, you've been teaching us much about marriage, about sexuality, uh, what is right, what is wrong, particularly in, in light of this present culture. And now we've come to this topic about singleness. And we would ask that you would, um, your spirit would teach us, help us to grasp this whole thing in a way perhaps that we've never grasped or understood it before, uh, so that we respond and align with your actual plan as recorded in your word. And then we'll give you all the praise and the honor and the glory, even as we did just a few moments ago. In Jesus' name, amen. There's been a tremendous upsurge in the number of single uh, persons. The earlier emphasis, of course, that marriage was the only option has now waned. Many are postponing marriage for education and economic reasons. Uh, Third, increasing numbers are choosing never to marry. And, um, And then, of course, the huge increases in divorce, which has swelled another category of singles. And... uh, there are a variety of sing- uh, there's, a, there's a whole variety of single existence. One is youth, young adult singleness, the growing gap from when a person becomes an adult to when they marry. And singleness at this stage isn't viewed as an end in itself, but the prelude to marriage. Another group would be an extension of this, the unchosen singleness, and uh, beyond marrying age, this is not based on a willful decision so much in favor of the single life. Perhaps no opportunity uh, to marry came along, or uh, perhaps an opportunity came, but, uh, but the circumstances were such that uh, it was rejected at the time, um, maybe due to, uh, for a whole, a whole list of reasons. Or there is willed, celibate singleness. Some are both single and celibate because they've chosen this life. They chose this life in their youth or later in life. And uh, the missionary movement was fueled by people who chose this. Many, many were single. 
And then, of course, we've got the post-marriage singleness, and this state can come by either death of a spouse or divorce of a spouse. And some choose to remarry in this category, and others choose to remain single. So as you can see, singleness cannot be viewed as an over, in an oversimplified manner. And so anything that I say here, you're going to have to, because we've, we only have so much time, you're going to have to filter that through yourself and not think that I don't understand some of those things. We can't possibly cover. In fact, there's subcategories of these categories. And so you can't possibly address all the questions and all the issues that are going to come out of uh, something like that. The Catholic Church uh, laid great emphasis in the past in, in, on celibacy and the single life, still do, and the Protestant Church, on the other hand, gave marriage normative status. However, the New Testament displays an emphasis on both. And so the, uh, there's two key things I want to talk about, valuing singleness and considering singleness, but in light of what the Scripture is saying here. And the first one is valuing singleness. Uh, Jesus, Paul, and John the Baptist modeled the goodness of singleness. While ancient religions and cultures made family and childbearing an absolute value, uh, and they did, in fact, it was, there was no honor without family honor. And there was no real lasting significance or legacy without leaving heirs. The main hope for fulfillment and for the future was to have children. But Christianity's founder, Jesus Christ, the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, and the Apostle Paul were all single their entire lives. Paul's assessment in 1 Corinthians 7 is that singleness is a good condition. Blessed by God, and in some circumstances, it is actually better than marriage. And this led to the early church not to pressure people to marry and to institutionally support widows so that they didn't have to remarry. These widows were active in caregiving and good deeds in the neighborhood. On the other hand, pagan widows faced enormous pressures to remarry. Uh, Augustus even had widows fined if they failed to marry within two years. This pressure to remarry is still very strong in some non-Western traditional cultures, as well as in parts of the Western church subculture. But the Christian gospel de-idolized marriage. So let's look secondly uh, here, as we're looking at this matter of valuing singleness, that the, primary, the scriptures are going to reveal to us that the primary family for Christians to belong to is the church. And, uh, and uh, that's uh, that's. Very important. To value singleness, we first need to understand the nature of the church. We have a truncated view of the church. So we're going to unpack that by looking at the meaning behind baptism of all things. We have to step back here because our truncated view has, has uh, supported this idea that singles just might be plan B. Baptism pictures a number of realities that took place when we were saved. That Jesus was judged in our place, as you see on this screen already. 
The baptism in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're not going to read through all of this. Some of it I'm just going to, I'm going to skim over, and then I'm going to highlight certain key things that perhaps we're not, we haven't been as strong about in the Western church. So, uh, Jesus was judged in our place. Baptism, baptism pictures that. The baptismal waters picture the waters of judgment in Noah's day. That's what, that's what Peter was talking about. And as Noah and his family found safety inside the ark, so too we find safety in Jesus who took our judgment. So we're protected just like, from judgment just like the ark did. Well, the second one, that's not, uh, that's not really new to us. But this, and the second one isn't either, that our sins were washed away. Acts 22 says, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So it pictures that as well. Thirdly, that we were rebirthed to new life. We were buried, therefore, with him in bap by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, or, or of, of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And we, we repeat that. Uh, formula, if you like, taken from this passage every time someone's being baptized in one of our two tanks. For if we have been united with him, get this now, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection like his. In verse 8 it says it this way, that we live with him. So this newness of life that we that, that we get, that we raise to walk in newness of life, is an outcome of being united with Christ through his resurrection. The same power that raised him from the dead. And we live, we're united to him and we live in him. That's where the abundant life is. And you'll want to remember that the, for what we're going to say in just a little while, in, in a few moments. Number four, it pictures that we were immersed in the life of the Spirit. Matthew 3.11 says, I baptize you with the water for repentance, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, using that metaphor, again, of baptism, which is the same thing that Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, when he said, for in one spirit we were all, what's the word? Baptized into one body, Jew or uh, Greek, slave or free. But then Paul added something else. In that verse, we'll bring it up again, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And this brings us to a fifth reality pictured by baptism, united to Christ's body. Paul could have simply said that the spirit united us to the body, but instead he used the baptism metaphor to say it. He could have just said, and you know, the Spirit, we were immersed in the Spirit, and the Spirit united us to the body. But he didn't. He used the baptism metaphor for a reason to picture and accent another thing that happens simultaneously at conversion. Yes, baptism picture that Jesus was judged for us, and that we could be hidden in him. Yes, that our sins were washed away. Yes, that we're immersed in the Spirit. And yes, that we're united to and live in. Uh, and with Jesus, like the vine and branches. But salvation isn't just about Jesus and me. We are not just connected to Jesus at salvation, as wonderful that, as that is. And for decades, that's what the church has been preaching, 
It's about Jesus and me, Jesus and me, Jesus and me. All the songs are about Jesus and I. It's not about we. We are also automatically connected to his body at salvation. And that's why Paul links the two with this metaphor. Uh, there was a reason uh, that Paul was bringing this up at, the, uh, at this point in his letter to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church didn't understand this part either. That's why there were so many divisions among them between the rich and poor in chapter 11. And now, uh, here the division stemmed from different gifts. Some felt they actually didn't need others. <laughs> you know, I got, I got the gift of, in this case, it, it was tongues that they were fighting over. They had Jesus and the Holy Spirit. What else did they need? They certainly didn't need each other. They were good to go. Jesus, Holy Spirit, and one of his gifts, and we're good to go. But Paul remonstrates them, saying, oh, No, the eye cannot, cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. You not only need Jesus in spirit, you need, and I need, his church. This is an absolute. That's what he's getting at. And so at salvation, he automatically unites us to Christ's worldwide body, the church, which finds expression in the visible local church. And the reason you need his body, the church, is because the life is found in Christ, and it is, isn't it? Though it's found in Christ, you can't get all of his life and grace directly from him. I can prove it. Ephesians chapter 4 says, but, but what? Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift from which the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, it's joined and, and equipped uh, by grace, when it's working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body builds itself up in love. In other words, you can get saved, <clears throat> but this idea that you can go into the forest and worship Jesus by yourself, Scripture categorically says can't be done. You can't do it apart from the body of Christ. Because some of the grace, much of the grace that you're going to need to grow as a believer doesn't come directly from Jesus. It goes through his body. Wow! That's why I've often said in the past, I just didn't always understand it as clearly as I think I have in, in recent times, Show me a person who's not in the church, and I'll show you a person who is not living a fulfilled, victorious life in Christ. Automatic, I can say that. Because the Bible says that. Is it true? Wow, that's powerful. In terms of the way the Western church thinks today, it's kind of an option. Um, many pastors tell me 
that average attendance now, good atten average good attendance now is two out of four weekends a month. And then there's very little other interaction besides. And what the scriptures are saying is, can't do it. We're not just connected to the head, we're connected to the body. That's incredible. And this body, the church, <clears throat> is also called something else. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says, You are fellow citizens <clears throat> with the saints and members of the, what is it? Household of God, which is another way of saying family of God. Some translations use that. In some other parts, that's, that's how he, he calls it. At salvation, we are placed into the broad family of God, Christ's church, expressed in the local church family. And remember what I said earlier in the series, that marriage is entered into by means of a covenant between the couple, the husband and the wife. It is entered in covenant <clears throat> between the covenant between the couple and God, and before witnesses. Uh, that's how it's entered. In the early church, water baptism became the covenant act by which believers entered the local church family. Now, recall something else we learned. The marriage covenant was strengthened, nurtured, renewed by the sex act. You feel so connected and in love again. God made it that way. It's not dirty. God designed it. He's a good God. He's a holy God. He designed it that way. In the same way, the baptismal covenant by which you enter the church is also nurtured and strengthened and renewed. And you know what? That's how it's done? Through the Lord's Supper. That's why they often called it the love feast. Often when we have finished the Lord's Supper at a prayer summit, uh, we hug. And isn't it true when we're, you know, we're all taken, you know, we've prayed together, we've confessed together, we've done all, sung together, and we've done all that for two hours, and now we have the Lord's Supper together, and remember what he did, and we recognize that we're one in him, we're part of the same family, and all once you look at those people that are around you, and you feel like hugging them. Isn't it true? Or isn't it? Happens at the love feast. And we're reminded of it again. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, alluded to this idea when he warned the Corinthian believers. Now I'm going to read it and just, just hang on. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. What's he, what's he getting at? Participation in the Lord's Supper is a redeclaration of loyalty to the Lord. So you can't be participating at the Lord's Supper and loyal to Him and then go to the table of demons and declare loyalty there. That's, uh, that's, what, he's get, uh, that's what he's getting at. That's why, and it is an act of solidarity with the members of the family of God. That's why it's always done together. That's why you don't go and have communion just by yourself in the woods. Because it's, it's not just an act between us and God, but between us and others. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians 10, about the one loaf that we uh, represent. 
And that's why we're required to examine ourselves before participating. We're talking here about the family of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, Let a person examine himself then, <clears throat> and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, you'd think that Paul, we're all familiar with the examination part. We get it. <clears throat> we know we're supposed to do it. What I find fascinating about this is that you'd think that Paul would have said, without discerning the Lord, wouldn't you? But he doesn't. He said, without discerning the body, the family of God, in other words, members of the body or the family. So then without discerning the body means that since they are the body of Christ or the family of God, they should act like it when they assemble. And they weren't. Instead, there were divisions among them and factions, rich versus poor in, in uh, chapter, uh, chapter 11, chapter 12, certain gifts versus other gifts, and so on and so forth. And Paul said that the Lord was judging some in the church, the family of God, through health and even death because of it. This is remarkable. <laughs> That's, this is remarkable. See how this, mirror, uh, how this is mirrored by marriage. Peter warned husbands to treat their wives properly or their prayers would not be what? Answered. Marriage, it was a form of judgment on that. We're talking here about another family, the family of God, and the, and the human marriage. Human marriage and family reflects many of the things that are happening within the Godhead, exclusive love and intimacy and, and all those kinds of things, but it also is picturing another ultimate reality. Dimly, but it's mirroring the, fa the broader family of God. And so we see these parallelisms. And that's why Jesus was told that his mother and brothers were outside. Uh, uh, when Jesus was told that his mother and brothers were outside asking to speak with him, he replied, Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother, the family of God. That's what he's talking about. No wonder they had all things in common. They viewed themselves as family, selling of their possessions to give to their brothers and sisters in need. They got it. They got it. I mean, I, I think about this. <laughs> I'm reminded of a funny picture that comes to my mind right now. Um, we, we, were, uh, we live right next door to one of our children, uh, Kim and Travis and their four kids. And one day, Fran and I were driving back, and we opened the garage door, and there was somebody standing at the freezer with it open. It was Travis. <laughs> and he just looked... Deer caught in the headlights. Now, because Travis is in the family, we laugh. And it was fun and it was good. Had anybody else been doing that, we'd have been calling 911. They're raiding our freezer. 
took a slice of bread. Frozen. What I'm saying is that human marriage and family are not the ultimate reality. Human marriage and family simply mirror ultimate reality, God's family. And that's why, according to Jesus, we won't be given in marriage in, in heaven. Now, our culture with its individualistic emphasis has contributed to the loss of this understanding of the church. And at the same time, we bind with... Uh, and, and, um, and, and, we, and we need to understand that within that context, you say, well, maybe you're dismissing the whole, uh, dissing the whole thing of marriage and stuff. No, not at all. Within the context of the family of God, we bind with certain persons within the larger fellowship. For the marrieds, this inner community is their marriage and family. Singles develop close ties with few others within the church families, or many others, actually. You know what this all means? Do you know what this all means? Singles, I mean, our, 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 our primary family is the one that's going to last for eternity. Is it true? The family of God. And what that all means then is singles, you are not second-class citizens because you're not in a human marriage here. You are already in the family of God that human marriage and family mirrors and reflects. You are already experiencing ultimate, an element of ultimate reality. Oh, I'm not tearing, I'm not diminishing marriage this, this weekend. But I am elevating the status of singleness. The status that Jesus and Apostle Paul and John the Baptist were part of. Singles, you are on equal footing with marrieds in the local family of God. Here are your father and mother, your brothers and sisters, just like Jesus. Welcome to the family. Here's something else we want to do. We want to consider singleness as a way of life within the family of God. And there's just a, a couple of things that I can say, but I'm going to take them right out of, out of Scripture, what Scripture has to say about it. Paul says three things about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He said, you've got to consider it in times of temporary crisis. In 1 Corinthians 7, 26 to 28, he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. What's he getting at? I mean, the view of marriage here seems to be at odds with the exalted view of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. You know, where he compares it to Christ and the church. And it's almost like, we better all get on the bandwagon and get married right now. In fact, let's just line them up, all the singles, we'll match them right here on stage. <laughs> you're with this one, and you're that one, and... That's almost the feeling you come away with after you finish reading Ephesians chapter 5. And then you read this, and suddenly you say, well, shoot, now he's had a, you know, he's had a bad night. And now he's not for marriage anymore. But the context makes things clear. 
He said, in view of this present distress or crisis, and in verse 28 he adds a companion word, troubles, it is something they were experiencing at that moment. Remember, this is a live letter going to a church, a real church, in real time. And they were facing crises uh, during, at, at times. And uh, the church was facing flare-ups of severe persecution in ver various forms. And we read it right in the Scriptures, in the book of Acts, like expulsion from Rome, imprisonment, confiscation of property, even martyrdom. So his point was, in light of the troubles we are already experiencing, who needs the additional burden of marriage and family as well? And why is he thinking like that? Uh, a man who has no wife or children liable to suffer because of his refusal to compromise or deny his faith is in a stronger position than one who must consider what effect his stand will have on his dependents. And I've read stories, and no doubt many of you have, of husbands and fathers who, when persecuted, really struggled with what they were going to do because of, because of their children and their families. And so this was only advice, not an imperative or command, and it was in light of a present distress or circumstance. He's not making light of marriage, but he said you might want to consider that as an option when it gets distressful. Now, we don't, understand, we don't get that quite as easily because we don't live like that. At least not yet. But in many of the parts of the world, in some of the places where I've traveled, not all of them, um, they get this. They are in the middle of this kind of thing. And so they, they would get that. Here's the second uh, consideration. Because the time is short and the world is passing away. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short, he said. Now, we know that time is short in a number of ways. It's short in the sense that our salvation is nearer than when we were first saved, according to Romans 13. Isn't that true? It's true. It is also short in the sense that our life is but a vapor. It's fleeting. Here today, gone tomorrow. It goes so fast. So, the psalmist says, teach us to number our days. I was, I was, I was thinking and meditating on that just the other day again. Very moving when you think about that. And you think about how, how quickly your life passes. Can't believe it. 43 years of marriage. 62 years old. And I keep looking at the calendar and I keep saying, i got to make use of time. Urgency. Urgency. But Paul had something further in mind here because he was talking about the appointed time that is short. Some have thought that he just got it wrong. Um, you know, that he thought that Jesus was coming that, you know, next week or next month or, or something, like, like very, very close. But the fact that he, uh, that he uh, addresses a whole bunch of things in 1 Corinthians that wouldn't be important if, <laughs> if Jesus were coming next month shows that he didn't necessarily think that. Um, he had something else in mind here. And I'm going to just back up into the Old Testament just a little bit. The feasts, the sacrifices, all the temple rituals, all pointed forward to what God would do one day. The Old Testament prophets preached the Messiah would end the old order, then begin the new age of God's kingdom in which all things would be put right and death and decay banished. True? 
And then it happened. Jesus arrived and announced he was Messiah. But to everyone's surprise, he didn't ascend his throne and beat him with a rod, the enemies, that is. He didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. What did it all mean? Jesus announced that the kingdom of God had arrived and that one, would, that one could enter it by, uh, by means of repentance and faith, uh, resulting in a new birth, John chapter 3. Though the kingdom of God hadn't arrived in its fullness, Jesus demonstrated that the kingdom of God was already breaking through by casting out some of the enemy forces called demons. So he's demonstrating that it was already breaking in. The kingdom was breaking in. This was a guarantee of the final crushing defeat yet to be delivered. It's kind of like if, if you've got, uh, you know, in World War uh, II, and I remember reading the book by MacArthur, and they talked about, uh, you know, uh, they would try to get an island, but they had to establish a beachhead. It was completely occupied by the enemy, and then they would fight to establish a beachhead, and once they got the beachhead, it was like success was guaranteed. Yes, there was a lot of fighting that's going to still be done, but the end was in sight. Time was short. It was guaranteed. We should understand what he's saying there more in that sense. It's guaranteed. The kingdom has broken in. It's just a matter of time now, guys. And he wins the whole thing. That's what, that's what he's saying. Scoffers were saying, on the other hand, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So Paul answered, present form of this world is already passing away. It's assured. It's guaranteed. You can see it happening already. You're not living for the now. You're living for that kingdom and eternity. That's why Paul then says, here goes, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Don't put all your stock in possessions and position and station in life and success and reputation and friendships or even marital status. That's what he's saying. Whether or not you are married or have family, your fulfillment must not be derived from that. That's not your goal. Your goal isn't. That isn't the end in itself, to be married and have a family. That's not the end. Not for married people, and I often see that. In, in, the, in our Western culture, I often see marriages, Christian marriages and family, where they've become an end in themselves. They've idolized marriage. They've idolized family to the exclusion of what God wants them to do. Yes, marriage is wonderful and has, you know, it's, it can be intimate and loving and fulfilling, and et, et cetera, et cetera. But that's the byproduct of the ultimate goal, which is to serve Jesus Christ in his kingdom. And so singles... And again, I'm talking to lots of different categories, okay? So please forgive me. But for those of you that are, who are just, have this tunnel vision that I can't really do anything till I get this thi one thing settled, 
that's not your goal. That isn't the goal, married or not married. The goal is, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all those things will be added. As God determines, it doesn't mean he's going to make you wealthy, and you're going to have a big position, and you're going to be married. And No, no. But that's the goal. Therefore, we should be glad of success, but not overly glad. And saddened by failure, but not too downcast. Because our true joy is guaranteed by God. What does that mean for our attitude toward marriage and family? Paul says that it means that both being married and not being married are good conditions to be in. We should be neither overly elated by getting married, nor overly disappointed by not being so. Because Christ is the only spouse that can truly fulfill us, and God's family the only family that will truly embrace and satisfy us. Many people are driven into marriage out of a deep need for security. And that deep security should only be found in Jesus Christ. That means you can be in a marriage that sucks. And there's nothing you can do about it. But the point is, that's not where you're getting your fulfillment from. Your fulfillment comes through Jesus Christ. And through his body, the broader family of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because this world will pass, we should not marry out of such desperation. Here's the last reason that he gives in that passage. 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world. How she can please her husband. He's not saying that's bad. He's just saying this is reality. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul is teaching that there are advantages that singles have in spreading the gospel and doing God's work, for, uh, work of ministry. Family life necessarily, necessarily absorbs, uh, absorbs a lot of uh, our energy and time and directs large amounts of our time and attention into a smaller number of people. Single life can free you to serve and minister to more people. That's what Paul is arguing. It is not surprising, therefore, that such a high number of celibate people have formed the core of the missionary force of the church. Such persons have, uh, in the past, such persons have offered effective service to the advancement of the gospel. Such intentional singleness and celibacy offers certain advantages in specialized areas of church service, such as pioneer missions, working among the destitute, act, uh, or activity in especially dangerous or taxing circumstances. Singles are particularly well-suited for those kinds of areas, and we need them. We, uh, the, the church here financially supports a single woman in Turkey, a Muslim country. I thank God for people like that, don't you? This person sacrifices the intimacy of marriage and joy of family and affirms singleness 
to fulfill a high calling to ministry in the kingdom of God. This pictures the self-sacrifice of God for the salvation of lost humanity. So you see, marriage pictures elements about God, and singleness pictures elements of God. Self-sacrifice. He's a self-sacrificing God. And singles can uh, reflect that. I want to wrap it up now. We need marrieds who will sacrifice themselves in order to raise the next generation of ministers who will die to themselves for the kingdom of God. I'm talking about marrieds. I'm talking about people, yes, that love their wives. That's what Ephesians says. Love their families. Do stuff with their family. They must. There is no other way to do that. It absorbs a tremendous amount of time and energy. But the focus isn't on what they're going to get out of it. The focus is Christ-centered and kingdom-centered. Not self-centered. Not for self-fulfillment. And not so that I'm just going to have people to kind of wait on me when I get old. That's not the point. Now, that might be a byproduct. <laughs> I hope it works for me. But that's not the goal. And we need. So, and, we, and I'm praying for that God will call many singles, like we have a Carla Fontaine and we have a Grace Fast, to sacrifice to advance the kingdom in this generation. That can give copious amounts of time. Now, I know sometimes with singles, they've got children too. In which case, it complicates things, especially when they're young. Makes it even worse than, harder than uh, married couples. But that was my point. You, you have to listen through a filter in this message. But there's many singles who we're going to need in the coming days, like a Carla and Grace, to sacrifice to advance the kingdom in this generation and invest tremendous amounts of time and energy. The choice must be made. You say, well, how do I choose between the two? Now, now you've got me confused. No, it's very easy. Very simple. Difficult, yes. But simple, yes, as well. You know how to do that. The choice must be made in light of one's calling, as discovered in prayer through hearing the voice of God's Spirit intentionally. So maybe this morning, the Holy Spirit's working in you. Maybe he's calling you to something special that way. You thought you wouldn't be complete. You wouldn't be fulfilled in the kingdom of God, in the family of God, unless you were married. And now you're realizing, actually, you're valued just the way you are. Maybe God wants you to be married. That's fine. Maybe he doesn't. That's a sacrifice as well. That's a sacrifice. Maybe you want to pray with somebody in the prayer room just through the double doors in the prayer room right after the service. Marrieds, this is what I want to say to you. Many of us in the Western church have made an idol of our marriages and family. It's about our self-fulfillment. It's about our cozy, exclusive little family that feeds us. 
This is what I want to ask you today. Are you willing to lay down your idol and seek first the kingdom of God? This is what I want to uh, say to singles. Maybe you've idolized marriage yourself. You want it more than you want a relationship with God, your true spouse. Or you want a spouse more than you want God's will for your life. And I want to ask you this question. Are you willing to lay down your idol today as well? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what the scriptures call us to. And that's where you will find all the fulfillment you've been craving. It's found in him and his body. Isn't it true? Ultimate fulfillment. Maybe you're, you came here and you're not a member of the family of God. You're not a Christ follower. You're not a Christian. But maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now. Something is stirring inside of you. You can't really explain it. You need Jesus. You're separated from him, and you will remain that way after death unless you are reconciled to him by repenting of your sins and putting your faith and trust in his finished work on the cross on your behalf. You, ju- you can just call out to him and ask him and say, I'm putting my trust in you now. And you can be saved. You can become a member of Christ. That's what baptism pictures. That's one of the things it pictures. I'm going to pray a prayer, and you can silently pray that prayer. And if you mean that, then you can become a member of the family of God, adopted into his family. What a tremendous privilege that is. He becomes your heavenly father. And then I'm going to pray a prayer immediately after that, following, I won't break. I'll move right into another prayer, and it's going to be for marrieds and singles who are believers. That's the vast majority of us here. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. If you have idolized family and marriage from either side of the page, as a married or a single, and you've placed that above Christ, then I want you to lay that thing down. And I want you to connect to him and let him help you sift through that. How you can seek first Christ and his kingdom. I'll begin with a prayer for those that don't know Jesus. Lord, I I thank you for bringing me here today and I'm not a child of yours. I'm not part of the family of God. But today, I've been thinking about this, and today I want to become a child of God and a member of the family of God. And so I'm turning from my sinful past and independent way of living and ignoring you, living life without you, and I am putting my faith and trust, and I'm asking you to save me, Lord Jesus, because you died on the cross. Wash away my sins. Thank you that you took my judgment. I ask you to forgive me and make me a child of yours. 
And now for Christians, I'm going to pray for you. Members of the family of God, Lord, I have placed my marriage and my family above you. I wanted them for myself. I wanted fulfillment out of them. I wanted security out of them. And I realize that's a mistake. You gave them to me as a gift. And I give them back to you. I choose to devote my life to leading them towards a faith in Jesus and a wholehearted commitment to Christ and his church. And Lord, as a single today, I have been so desperate that I have completely forgotten my walk with you and all those things that you're asking me to do in the moment. And I've made this my focus. It's become my idol. I lay it down. I, I choose today to seek your kingdom first. I choose to seek you with all my heart and to press into you. And then, Lord, I leave it up to you. This is what I would like, but show me your calling for the remaining days of my life. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.